If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been in Philippians for a little bit. We're, we've finally turned the corner, going home. Uh, this is chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to be able to flip to Philippians 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3 this morning, uh, looking at a, a very, very clear way that Paul is going to really exhort uh, two of the believers in the Philippian church. Uh, so a little bit about me, I grew up in church. You could say I was basically born in a church. I remember growing up, I would go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and then again on Wednesday night. So it was like three times a week I was at church. And I can remember specifically when I was little, around like eight to 10 on Sunday mornings, I really just wanted to go home and watch the Cardinals lose. So that uh, grew in me and grew in me and grew in me where, where you'll hear a lot of times kids that grow up into church, they need to make their faith their own. And that happened for me finally one day where I was just like, okay, I need to take what my mom and dad have instilled in me and I need to make that faith my own. And I started to notice immediately that it was almost like God was compartmentalized in my life, that my relationship with God was, was somehow up here, but it didn't really have anything to do in relation to my relationship with anything else uh, in my day-to-day -day life. God was very much compartmentalized. And then finally one day I heard it explained probably the best way is to look at your relationship with God and other things in different planes where God is almost on this vertical plane and your relationship with, your God, with God is vertical. It, it's, it's every day trying to get better, trying to seek him, trying to further your relationship. You know, the idea of constant sanctification that could be taking place in your heart where the Lord is speaking things into you, like your life should look different in 10 years than it does today, that vertical relationship with God is consistently growing. But your vertical relationship with God also treats the way that you treat your horizontal relationships. And those are relationships all over the map. That could be relationships with your spouse, with your kids, the way that you conduct business, the way you treat your coworkers, uh, even, even the way you treat your pets. Your vertical relationship with the Lord basically stems down into your horizontal relationships. And what we're going to see in our text today is our horizontal relationships, as great as our vertical relationship is with God, the hor horizontal relationships can still massively be fractured by sin and by pain. So we're just going to jump right in, Philippians 4, verse 1. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Bible Interpretation 101, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, a lot of times, therefore looks back. Uh, pretty much every time it looks back. So it could also be translated like for this reason. So we have to look at like what's Paul trying to tie. This is a, a very transitional verse in the book of Philippians. So verse one, he's tying it back into the end of chapter uh, three. So you'll notice in the end of chapter three, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's saying, look at my example of my relationship with Christ. Look at those who are mature in their relationship with Christ and follow those examples. And he contrasts it uh, with people. He says, I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, that there's other people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
So these people, he's contrasting himself and the mature believers in the Philippian church with those who walk as enemies in the cross of Christ. And then Paul says, look, those people, their end is destruction. Live this way. Live as citizens of heaven. Live with the mindset that, yes, you're a citizen of Rome, but ultimately your citizenship is held in heaven. So that's how he ends chapter 3, and then he starts verse 1 in chapter 4 saying, therefore, because of all this, my brothers, whom I I love and I long for my joy, my crown. Paul's writing this in prison. He's in chains. And you can just see the emotion drip from the pages of scripture as he's writing to these people saying, I love you. I long for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. He calls him his beloved twice, but he gives them a command where he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. I love the way the NASB puts it. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. So verse one, therefore, looking back because of this, you should live this way. And that's chapter four, where Paul starts to exhort the believers in this church to live in specific ways. So what exactly does that mean, to stand firm? What's Paul asking them to stand firm in? Uh, one commentator kind of breaks it down where Paul is talking about the main themes of Philippians, which we've covered uh, throughout this book. The first thing is stand firm in regards to your citizenship. So remember Philippians 1.27, Paul says, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in Philippians 3.20, he points out our citizenship is in heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven. So stand firm knowing that your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. The next thing, stand firm in the face of opposition. Philippians 1.28, he talks about those who oppose you. The main religion of that day was the imperial cult emperor worship. So Christianity was not exactly the, the top-notch religion in that day, and Paul recognizes what his people are going to be dealing with. He calls those people those who oppose you, and then in chapter 3 actually he goes to say that those individuals are enemies of the cross. And then lastly, stand firm in unity. So Philippians 1.27, Paul exhorts these believers, stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord, be on the same page each, with each other, be unified. Unified, and that's ultimately uh, what leads us into what we're going to talk about today. So stand firm regarding your citizenship, stand firm in the face of opposition, and then lastly, stand firm in the midst of any discord or disunity that is happening. Paul's telling them, stand firm in the Lord. Then he makes a pivot right away in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So Euodia and Syntyche, uh, so if you're a pregnant woman and you're having a baby girl and you just can't really think of a name, these names were very, very popular in the first century. These are two women in the Philippian church that are clearly in disunity. They're clearly in disagreement. And there's all kinds of theories on what Euodia but might have believed and what Syntyche might have believed. But the fact of the matter is, is we know that these two are not in agreement with each other. And it's interesting because Paul entreats Euodia and then he entreats Syntyche. He's not putting them together. He's pleading with both of them individually to agree in the Lord. 
So whatever these two women are going through, it's sowing discord among them, but then it's, dis it's sowing discord among the congregation. It's sowing discord within the community. But Paul doesn't stop there. In Philippians 4.3, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So that's emphatic. Paul's saying, yes, I ask you also, true companion. And they don't know who that true companion is. It could have been Timothy. It could have been Epaphroditus. Paul's pleading with that one person he really, really trusts in to help these women. But not only his true companion, he's asking for those who labored side by side with him in the gospel. You've got Clement. You've got all the fellow workers that are helping Paul plant this church in Philippi where Paul is appealing to them, asking them, help these women. Help these women. That word for help, it, it communicates something to like to pull them in, to take hold of, to seize, to grasp. This is the same verb that's used to describe when they arrested Jesus or when they arrested Peter or when the, the disciples were in the boat and they cast the net out and there were so many fish that they all had to help pull that net back into the boat. Paul cares about these people dearly. Remember, he longs for them. They're his joy. They're his crown. And he's asking the entire church, hey, help these women. Grab hold of them. Let them be able to see what they're doing and how what they're doing is wrong. So unity is important. And I feel unity is important with us in the local church body, but also unity is important with how we're viewed to society. So it's very clear in 2020 that we live in a secular age and that non-Christians will always look at the church to try to find things that we might be doing wrong. So in the case of unity, I feel unity is so important within the church, not only with how the church gathers together and the church operates with each other, but also with how the church is viewed at large in the public realm. And the first thing I want to look at is that reconciliation in our horizontal relationships ultimately leads to a clear view of God's grace. So I'd love to do this, uh, but the camera cannot raise its hand. So I'm just going to ask you, if you're sitting in your living room or, or wherever you're watching this right now, I'm just going to ask for a show of hands. It, it won't be as awkward that way if you're just sitting next to your spouse or maybe you're by yourself. Um, think through with me the last 12 to 18 months. Um, if you have had any sort of uh, falling out with someone in, in a relationship where a relationship's been fractured or damaged, there's been some sort of falling out, just go ahead and, and raise your hand. Maybe there's a name coming to mind. Maybe there's a face coming to mind. Um, now keep your hand up and I'll ask this. How many of you would say that falling out that happened, uh, it wasn't a result of anything that I did? I'm like, I was cool. I was totally fine through the entire relationship. It's nothing that I did. Uh, the falling out all had to do with the other person. Just go ahead and keep your hand lifted. Statistics would, sh would say that anywhere from 65 to 70 75% of you would have your hand still raised because we automatically will blame the other person for any sort of fracture that happens in a relationship. Now I want to ask this question. How many of you would believe, hey, I'm a Christian. I believe God loves me. I believe God forgives me. I think all of us who are Christians could raise our hand at that, right? 
One thing I've learned in pastoral ministry is in counseling, now I'm not a licensed counselor, but when I do pastoral counseling, it is very, very helpful to try to figure out the two sides of every single story. So if you're counseling a husband, it's helpful to know what the wife is thinking as well and vice versa. It helps because I feel like every single story has two sides. And in those sides, what you start to kind of root out, and what you, what you start to feel is that at the end of the day, just like the, the great philosopher Taylor Swift, she used to say, haters are gonna hate. For us, it's sinners are gonna sin. We're filled with sin. That sinners will sin, that, that's just how uh, we're gonna be. So I wanna take this from three different aspects. One of, if there's been a fracture in relationship where you've been the offender, you're the offending party, then we'll look at it from if you're the offended party, you've taken offense to something. And then lastly, we'll look at all of this in light uh, of just our holistic need for reconciliation with our vertical relationship. So first and foremost, if you're the offender, uh, if you're somebody that the relationship's been damaged due to something that you might have said or you might have done, um, I think the best way to look at it is in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Uh, verses 23 and 24, Jesus looks at the people and he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is dealing with the people with like feelings of anger. And it's interesting because in verses, I think 21 and 22, Jesus is, is dealing with the subjective view of anger and how that makes you feel to actually now moving in how anger should then make you act here in verses 23 and 24. He's moving that and he's starting to see like, okay, let's see, how has this actual relationship been fractured? How has it been destroyed by that anger or the contempt that you feel. So a couple things, if you're the offending party, um, I think the first thing we have to do is examine our hearts. I think there has to be an honest prayer that takes, takes place that basically says, you know, Lord, is there a brother or a sister that I've offended, that something that I've said in the past has fractured a relationship? The, the fact of the matter is, is all of our hearts are dark in some sense. And if we don't constantly take an examination to see what might have gone wrong in our relationships, we could have fractured relationships that we might not even know about. But if a name did come to mind, if a face came to mind, examine your heart. Let the Lord reveal to you what your wrongdoing was and, and try to examine that in your own heart. The next thing is seek to make peace. Uh, the Bible is abundantly clear, and Jesus telling us in Matthew 5, 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Later on in Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If, something has, if someone has something against you because of something that you've done, something that you've said, then as much as it depends on you, try to be at peace with that person. Try to reconcile that relationship with that person. But lastly, we need to learn to live with pain if reconciliation ultimately does not succeed. Remember that Romans 12, 18 verse, so as far as it depends on you, you can make those steps to reconcile the relationship. That's not a surefire guarantee that that relationship will be reconciled. The other person has to move to reconciliation and ultimately the spirit has to bring two people together. So if you're the offending party, 
We have to learn to examine our hearts. We have to learn to seek to make peace and ultimately to be able to live with the damage that we might have caused if we've caused it. Now, let's say uh, you're the opposite party. You're somebody who's been offended. You're somebody who, who has taken offense, that a relationship's been damaged because of what somebody's done to you. I, I pulled up a really helpful article. It's actually by a pastor's wife, oddly enough, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and it had some really pointed steps to take if you have been offended. And the first thing is, uh, be able to discern when the offense can be overlooked. Uh, Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. There's just this concept of wisdom here, that wisdom kind of makes us slow to speak, slow to act, to pray for wisdom that the Lord would give that to us and be able to discern, okay, that offense that took place, is that, is that something that I can overlook or is that something that ultimately I need to address? I think a good rule of thumb is to, if your first reaction is like, man, that person needs to be told, we have to check in our own hearts. Is that the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Or is that just basically our self-righteousness trying to rear its ugly head, trying to go correct a person? Oftentimes when we've been offended, it's good to kind of slow down and realize what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to win an argument or are we trying to win a friend? But I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't some offenses that need to be, be told about, that need to be rebuked. So the second, second step is, is be ready to rebuke, but also be ready to forgive. Jesus says in Luke 17, 3 and 4, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus gives very clear path here. You know, if your brother or sister sins against you, bring that up to them, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. But Jesus is almost like saying this in the context of like, well, you know your brother and sister, they might actually sin against you again. Continue to rebuke them. Continue to, to seek repentance in that. But when you rebuke, I think that we can do so with an angle of grace, showing one another grace in the way that re we rebuke. So pray for that. Pray for the ability to administer that grace in that situation. Uh, there's, there's five different ways I think that we can pray if we've been offended and we've taken offense. Uh, the first thing is we need to pray for God to search our wounded heart. Is that a pattern that's taken place between me and that friend? Uh, is it something that I possibly misunderstood? Was I tired at the time? Pray for God to search our wounded hearts to understand what exactly happened in the context of that specific wound. The next thing is pray for discernment. Pray to discern, is this an offense that can be overlooked? And if not, uh, pray for the Lord to discern to you uh, what exactly the rebuke should be. Third, pray that you would administer grace. Let us be a people where we administer grace in all of our conversations, knowing that grace has been bestowed upon us. Don't be harsh with your words. Administer grace in your conversation. Fourth, pray for a humble response. Pray that that person that you're rebuking would take it in a humble manner, that fences would be down, that relationships could be repaired. Pray for a humble response in that brother or sister when you go to confront or rebuke them. And then lastly, pray to live in harmony with each other. 
I'm not naive enough to think that like a simple conversation just mends all wounds, but it can go a really long way to just restoring a a once good relationship. So pray that the Lord would restore harmony between you and that other person. So reconciliation in our horizontal relationships leads us to a clear view of God's grace. That when we reconcile in our horizontal relationships, we enact the same grace that God gave us on the cross, but we ultimately have to also understand that reconciliation in our vertical relationship with the Lord leads to a clear view of God's character. So if that vertical relationship was broken, good luck in trying to mend the fences of horizontal relationships. That vertical relationship is of utmost importance. So we have to be realistic. If you're you're not a Christian, we have to understand that we are born with a sin nature. So by nature, we are children of wrath, that from birth, we are full of sin. If you do not believe that, uh, you can come hang out with me in quarantine. I have three-year-old twins, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. One of my twins the other day just decided to go downstairs with a pencil and poke holes in our bar stools. Um, Brand new bar stools just poked multiple holes in them. Why? Because he's filled with a sin nature. Knox is a little sinner. Uh, But it's clear, Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned. All, not some of you, all of us have sinned. I've sinned, you've sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a sin nature. We have all sinned, and because of that, we all fall short of God's glory. So the first problem is being sinners, separated from Christ, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. All of our sins accumulated, what we deserve from that is to die, to live a life in torment, live a life in hell, because the wages of our sin is death. So the second problem is, not only do we deserve death, we deserve the full wrath of God to be poured out upon us. We deserve the full wrath of God. Romans 2, 5, Paul has just talked in Romans 1 how by nature we prefer uh, creation rather than the creator, that we go our own way. And in Romans 2, 5, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his judgment, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Because you're stubborn, because you're not willing to come to the Father, because you have an unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for that day of wrath. That doesn't sound like a very fun day. Problem number three, because we've all fallen short, we're separated from God because of our sins. Again, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, I was asked a couple weeks ago, what makes Christianity different than, than all the other religions? And my answer had to do with, with just what we think of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, that the main thing about Christianity is that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. He had the ability to reconcile your sin to himself because of his ability to identify in our humanness and his ability to identify as God. But I got to thinking, I think what sep- another separating factor of Christianity and other religions is just what your ultimate search for truth, what kind of path or trajectory that leads you on. 
And here's what I'm saying. I think with other religions, there's just this center that your moral compass is what ultimately gets you to a level of heaven or a level of relationship or a level of like some sort of utopia because of the things that you have done. So when we go on a search for truth, we see, okay, it's my morality that gets me this divine feeling. But what ends up happening is we, we think, okay, I have to do X, Y, and Z to get to heaven. I have to do A, B, and C in order for God to be, uh, to view me as loved. And what ends up happening is we go through moralistic step after moralistic step after moralistic step. And what we start to understand is no matter what we do, it's never going to get us to God because our salvation does not depend on us. So that's why other religions, you see people leave those in droves because their morality, they understand by nature we're sinners. Our morality cannot save us. So what ends up happening is you climb this mountain of morality and you're at the edge of a cliff and you see 400 feet in the distance, God standing on another cliff and you just see this, this boundary between you that's the size of a Grand, Grand Canyon and you cannot get to God yourself. There's literally nothing you can do to bridge that gap by things that you do. So there's got to be something that draws that bridge. That's why last weekend we took such an awesome time to remember Good Friday, Jesus' death on the cross, the fact that he resurrected on Sunday. It's because Jesus is the one who bridges that gap. So we start to see that first problem. We deserve to die as penalty for sin. The solution is that Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus being brutally beaten and dying on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins. So that penalty that we deserve, Jesus paid that on the cross. Hebrews 9.26, it says, But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has the ability to take away our sin by being a sacrifice. The second problem, we deserve the full wrath of God. But in all reality, Jesus took on God's wrath on the cross on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the man who walked 33 years on this earth in complete union with his father, God, in complete perfection, all that wrath that is stored up upon us that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus took that wrath. 1 John 4, 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the substitution for our sins, to have that wrath of our sins poured out upon him. He took that so you didn't have to. And then lastly, we're separated from God because of our sins. The main point here is Jesus provides reconciliation. Jesus is the one who can close that chasm. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, it says, through Christ reconciled us to himself, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That it is only through Jesus Christ that you can have reconciliation with the Father. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can have a relationship with the Father. 
So if you're sitting there and you're not a Christian and you've climbed this moral mountain and you've finally come to the realization that, man, there is nothing that I can do to make myself perfect in my own eyes, realize you're always gonna feel like that. You need Jesus. And in the same coin, you have to understand that there's nothing you've done in your past life that Jesus Christ could not pay for. You cannot outsin the cross of Jesus Christ. So I'm not trying to get you to turn this video off today saying, agreeing with me, man, Jesus died on the cross. I want you to agree. Better yet, I'm going to beg you to understand that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for you. He died for your sins, that those sins that you committed are wiped clean. The scandal of the gospel, it is nothing that you have to do to get to the cross of Christ. Jesus already did that for you. So what now? You're thinking, okay, that sounds great. What do I do now? It's interesting when you look in the book of Philippians that we've been studying as a church for almost a year, you look at the book of Philippians, how it first started. Uh, Paul and Silas are going through Philippi trying to plant this church. They get thrown in prison and much like what we would do if we got thrown in prison, Paul and Silas get put in chains, the gates closed. They start to worship and sing praises and hymns to God in the middle of prison. They start singing these praises. They start singing these hymns. Scripture tells us that the, the people, the other prisoners heard it, and immediately there was an earthquake sent upon the prison. Their chains were loosed. Their gates were open. And meanwhile, you have the Philippian jailer, the guard of the jailer who had fallen asleep at the job. The earthquake woke him up. And when he wakes up, he starts to get startled. He gets scared to death because he sees all the different prison doors are open. All the chains are loosed from the prisoners. And he takes his sword and he goes to actually kill himself for sleeping on the job. But he starts to sense the power of the spirit with Paul and Silas. And he walks up to Paul and Silas and he just asks them the deep philosophical question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas just look back at him and they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that belief that the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross took away your sins. Believing in that is what saved you. Scripture tells us that it's belief in our heart that justifies us before the Lord, not our actions. It's belief in the heart that justifies us before God. And then it's with our mouth that we confess. So if you're sitting in your living room or you're laying on the floor watching this on your tablet, you can accept Christ. You have the ability to mend that gap by bringing Christ into your life. And that's just as simple as out loud praying to the Father, look, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm in need of a Savior. Come help me. Come into my life and be that presence in my life. It's as simple as that. I think there should be like a button below me somewhere that says like, say yes to Jesus, that you can click on that. And, and I would love to get in contact with you. A pastor from our church would love to get in contact with you to just further help you understand how much the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was meant for you. Now, if you're a Christian and you're watching this, you're like, Michael, I know, like I know all this stuff. You just took us through the Romans road. I just pray that we never lose sight of the fact, praise be to God that he sent his son to do this for us. 
Praise be to Christ that he died a brutal death on the cross so I can be reconciled to him. And let us never lose sight of the fact that the Lord has done that for us. And let us never lose motivation to just continuously proclaim that to the people around us. But my main point today is pursue reconciliation whether that's in your vertical relationship and you need to get yourself right with God, pursue that. Pursue the fact that the Lord loves you, that Jesus died for you. But better yet, if you need to pursue reconciliation in your horizontal relationship, I know we're living in a time where you might not wanna start a Zoom call and we're waiting for restaurants to open to take somebody to lunch. If the Lord's put somebody in your mind, whether you're the offending party or whether you're the one that's been offended, pursue reconciliation. Unity is of utmost importance in the church, not only with how we are geared toward other believers, but also with the way that the world sees us. Pursue reconciliation.